because she goes, have you heard of the Wall Street Journal? And I'm like, no, no, I've heard of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, she goes, we are doing a conference. It's an executive conference in San Diego. That was one of the biggest turning points for our company. Because all of a sudden, what we were doing in Charlottetown was given a stage at the largest executive digital conference in Silicon Valley. And this conference being hosted by Kara and Walt, and all of a sudden, this, this small Toronto team is, is building this Wall Street Journal conference network, which we did for 10 years. Welcome to The Problem Spaces. These are the stories at the intersection of life and business life. We have candid conversations with leaders of all stripes who share the authentic truths at the heart of their everyday life. Each episode is relatable, refreshing, and deeply human. I'm Lisa Grogan, and on today's show, we're talking to serial entrepreneur Mike Gurgis. Mike is probably one of Canada's leading marketing strategists, and kind of in a quiet way, even though he's not all that quiet himself. In the late 90s, he started a couple of businesses, One Stop Media Group and Fourth Wall Media, which created an entirely new marketing category in Canada, out-of-home digital. Today, we're all used to screens and elevators, flashing news updates, screens and subway systems, gas stations, retail environments, and at conferences. But back in the 90s, Mike and his business partners were total pioneers coming up with the creative and actually making the hardware themselves. The companies they formed back then... One Stop Media and Fourth Wall Media were successfully sold to the Jim Pattison Group. From there, Mike went on to co-found numerous companies together with his long-term business partner, including Big Digital and Dive Networks. And I know that today he's literally taking time away from doing deals as we speak to share his personal story and business stories with us. But Mike's story of success wasn't necessarily something many would have predicted from the lead singer of a rock band who left second year university to open a bar. Mike happens to be one of the most energetic, fun, and positive human beings there is. I can't help but smile as I even say his name and get into this conversation. You're going to find out just why I had to have Mike on as an early guest in this podcast series. Today, Mike will open up about leadership, life, and navigating problem spaces. Welcome, gorgeous Gurgis. If the cameras were on, they'd see me <laughs> blushing. Luscious Lisa. We're uh, back. What a nice intro. So I think that we, uh, Mike, actually have to start at the gorgeous, gorgeous, luscious Lisa, or people are going to wonder about, about things. <laughs> Do you want to share the story? Or? Wow. See, this all feels familiar because, you know, we did. I think it was 1991 or two, somewhere around there, right? 91. Where, yeah. We debuted our, our first radio show together. You know, I, I forget what the, the name of the show was. We certainly had our names, Luscious Lisa and Gorgeous Gurgis, which I don't think anyone in our year used their own names for such vanity. But wow, 1991 and thinking back to our friendship and, uh, you know, interaction back then and to think about where we are today. But this all, like you said, started at good old Ryerson, which is not called Ryerson anymore. Um, and, and again, if we're going to talk about what a, what a difference in what's happened in time. Absolutely. Would we ever think we'd be saying that? 
why did you choose RTA in the first place? Because I think you were already an older student coming in. And why did you leave in second year? Oh, gosh. So why RTA? I always loved the program. They did such a great job giving you a sense that that program will set you up for anything broadcast or radio or television. And it certainly had um, the appeal. Like I, I remember I didn't get in. <laughs> I didn't get in the first couple of times. And it was because my essay sucked, I think. You know, my marks weren't that great, um, especially on the English side. <laughs> so I remember, um, God love him, Sean Roberts, my English teacher, uh, always loved why I wanted to to go to RTA, knew who I was growing up in high school, and he knew that I, it was the right program for me, knowing the, my interests across radio and television and just that whole world. So he took extra time. I got the mark. My essay was killer. And my interview was with John Keeble. And um, I loved Ryerson for the reasons of just the access to the people. Like It felt like those that were actually teaching you were in the industry, which felt very uh, refreshing. So, Mike, you put a lot of effort into getting into Ryerson. It took you a few times. Yeah. Why, why did you leave in second year? Why don't we get my mom on the call? <laughs> and let's have her tell you how she reacted when I said, hey, hey, mom, dad, I got an opportunity to, uh, to open a restaurant bar. So uh, this program, as you said, that I've been trying to get into and I finally got into, I'm just going to do it for a year. I'm going to go to my, you know, the dean or chair of our faculty and see if I could get a deferral. Are you okay with that? Um, boy, that response from my parents was, was uh, you know, um, I'll never forget it. But I'll never forget the fact that the uh, they've always been parents, and you know this because you've met them, who've supported my crazy ideas and vision, um, right down to letting me have a rock band in our basement, practicing every day <laughs> while they were having dinner upstairs. Grew up, uh, you know, in you know, as I was, you know, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. My uncle had a had restaurants and and caravan in Toronto where we used to go and. Um, and, and work. Our whole family used to work and used to be serving food and, and, um, and having crowds come in and then the show. And, you know, we used to have scheduled programming and that, that all appealed to me. I love that sort of energy of, of creating experiences, bringing people in a room and, and we're on online now and creating an experience. So that was the reason I, I had a chance to be an entrepreneur. What business lessons did you learn from running a bar and being in the being, you were still in the band then. Obviously you went into it with this like showmanship, give people a great experience, like really think about, you know, probably the customer experience and you know, what, what were the key business tricks and tips did you learn in running that business? Well, that's great. That's a great question. There's so much. Cause I think I, I, and, and you know, my, partners that I had back then, we, uh, we still talk about this, where we all sort of look back on those experiences, even today, which help us to deal with situations today. So what, we were 21. Uh, the glamour of it was, 
wow, we're going to open a bar in our hometown and uh, all our friends are going to come. And it's like having a party every day and having bands that you want to curate and doing improv upstairs and all the stuff that you want to, you know, create experiences. Um, probably the very first lesson was, you know, uh, business comes and entrepreneurship comes with a massive responsibility, which is you have to take care of the people that actually come on and, and join your vision and believe in you. They need to, you know, have a paycheck every two weeks and, um, it needs to be sustainable. So this idea of creating experiences certainly moved us quickly into, we need to forecast a business. We need to understand that we have the right financials. Uh, there, there are legal implications if people leave our establishment and they've had too much to drink. There's a whole bunch of liability. Um, you really understand who your friends are in this business. Um, there is a whole level of self-awareness, uh, when you get into this, uh, I don't care how old you are, but that particular experience at that young of an age, um, when you're working 21 hours a day, really in that business, um, the three of us grew up really fast. I remember from 21 to 24, I saw my first gray hair. And, um, and said, okay, I'm getting wiser. Uh, and you know, we got more serious. We got more serious. Like as every year went on, we got more serious about, um, the stability of the business, the brand, the longevity of all the things that you got to start thinking about as a, as a real, as a grown up business person. Um, but we, we started thinking about those things early. How do you build equity? How do you build loyalty? You know, when, when someone as simple as eats, you know, a bad meal that that can get around and it could be like, ah, oh, don't eat there. They got their, their food is like, eh. um, those, and we didn't have social media at that time. Um, uh, but, but that amplification of how people felt about the business really resonated with us. So, we learned early that a brand is so important that mm-hmm. an ex- the experience, how do you make people feel like when they, when they say, yeah, I went to Dr. Gertie's, what I see, and thankfully 25 years, well, they're more than that now. Um, I still meet people today that, uh, you know, thankfully their eyes light up and the, what they feel is, is happiness, memories, fun. Um, you know, uh, precious moments with friends, uh, good old times. And so look, it's, um, and then, you know, that idea of how do you build a a brand and experience and equity certainly translated across all the businesses. So when I say that we look back on, um, on the experiences that we had having the bar, right down to having to speak to a drunk university student and tell them they can't pee in the corner. They're so (laughs) drunk and they have to leave and they're four times bigger than you. You start to understand how you craft your words early. So I think, you know, 
early on as well, dealing with people, communicating with all different types of people in whatever state that they're in, um, all the way to just uh, empathy and understand and being empathetic and listening to people. All of that stuff happened way back then. Well, that all super resonates in so many ways. And I think there's obviously a world in which you could have expanded Dr. Gertie's, you could have just continued on that path and probably been very, very successful, but you didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, you actually went back to RTA and uh, picked up that deferral. Tell me about uh, going back to art. Well, the decision to go back and uh, going back and, you know, the formations of what would become, you know, uh, your next startup. Yeah. Yeah. What a, what a journey. So a bunch of things happened there. Um, there were, you know, at this time, we'll fast forward. We've been doing, we've been running the bar for about six, seven years. So we're from 21. I'm now 28 ish. Um, we now have live events. We have bands playing. We have uh, Yuck Yucks, uh, Just for Laughs. Uh, way back when Mike Bullard wasn't and didn't have his own talk show, he was actually, you know, uh, I had him as our, our main MC for, for all of our comedy festivals. So, you know, this is about 97, 98. And so I'm fulfilled with the the entertainment making people feel amazing having them leave laughing and full and excited to come back and 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 be you know come back into our into our you know uh into our programming and and you know the goal with it is always trying to get people to to, to come more than once a week um but what i got enamored with was well you know what if people could be here every day without being here you know you know, as I was reading up on the internet, this is 97, 97, 98. And even back then hearing about web cameras where you could broadcast to anybody around the world. Uh, my mind started racing on, okay, wait a minute. So now, you know, business hat comes on. You don't have to think about 120 people. I could think about 120 people coming here, but I could have unlimited amount of people watching from this internet web camera thing um, where my head just raced and um, the timing felt right for me to really start to zero in on where I, where I knew I had to head back to, which was technology was changing around me very quickly. Um, I felt very uh, fulfilled in uh, a chapter of growing from <laughs> 21 to 28 of, of really experiencing business and people and experiences that totally made me feel like it's, I couldn't go to school to learn that. I just, those experiences you just don't learn in school. Um, my dad also had had uh, had his health issues at that time, right? So dad also had cancer. And, um, you know, one of the reasons why I loved opening it was it was his building. 
and it was named after him. He was the doctor. My friends called me Gertie. We created Dr. Gertie's. And, you know, the, the relevance of the brand was deeper for me. So um, when dad got sick, it, you know, it felt more like, hmm, maybe a chapter is, is, is closing. And so I correlated that and my, my, my desire to go back to school and understand where broadcasting was going and where my personal life was kind of intersecting was the right time for me to go back. And so I, at this time, my partners over the six, seven years also said, this has been unreal. One of them said, I'm going to do my MBA. The other one said, I wanted to go to teacher's college and, and, and fulfill. And I was the last one to go. I'm going back to RTA. And so in 1998, that, you know, I said, I'm, I'm going to go back and I'm going to figure out this technology and where the world of broadcasting is going. And like, interactive TV, going to click on your sweater. Like who, what the heck is going on around here? Um, so that desire of wanting to turn Dr. Gertie's into the studio where we could have all this programming um, quickly moved me back into, I had to go see, you know, John Keeble who gave me the deferral now eight years, not five and have a conversation with him. And, and, and the conversation that we didn't get into earlier was they said, you know, as long as you come back, what he said was back in 92, as long as you come back and you bring your experience back, go for it. I think there's something about that applied education that we got. And there's something about, they really did care about the experience and they really, you know, they, they really wanted us to go out and get that real life experience experience and bring it back. And I just think there was such momentum around that. So let's kind of, without skating over your, your Ryerson, you know, second time, but kind of like, take me to, you know, the Tara awards, because I think the Tara awards, I think in memory, if memory serves, that was kind of a pivotal moment and your springboard for your, your, your next startup. I ended up meeting with very early on this group of this group of, of uh, for, it started off with a group of like two or three guys. It was Ian and Ian, Ian and Jeff, and Josh, and just these smart cats. Like they were such a, a, a threesome that I was so, I've had, a, I had a bunch of classes with them. The, it was TV production where I really got a chance to know who these, who these guys were. But they were those guys who you just wanted to be in their group. Because between the three of them, you knew that, you know, Ian, Ian knew like how to switch. And then Jeff, like he could put three cameras on him and, and, and he could make them work. You know, like he was like rolling on one steady cam on the other. And then Josh was like this post-production God, but this group of us uh, became a, a producing group together. We did everything together which took us to our, you know, over the, <laughs> the three years of, to, to graduation, um, they, we became, you know, my comrades and, uh, and, and not only them, but there was also, you know, it, it expanded to a core group of us that had, you know, these three guys and, and, uh, two, uh, two, uh, females, 
uh, Aaron and Carrie. And so there was a five, so it was six of us, right? And so the six of us uh, decided that we're going to also do, to your point, to fast forward to the Terrace, which is the Television and Radio Achievement Awards for Ryerson's program. And so one group gets to produce that show. We produced the show, uh, and it was it was the year two thousand. Yeah, so we grad we were graduating, and and sort of at this point where um, it was two thousand, it was two thousand and one. So it was it was the Terror Awards, April twenty first in two thousand and one. So we got a chance to say, well, how do we turn the show uh, into a showcase of of technology? And, and like I said, the, my enamor to come back to school was I wanted to get immersed in, in the world of broadcasting that was totally changing. We'll, we'll never see a three camera shoot, nine channels that you pick to watch, you know, appointment app, appointment television, those, those old traditional terms got to be in front of the TV at seven fifty nine to watch that, you know, friends because the world changed. And so we had a chance to show in 2001 what the Terra Awards or what the future of television was going to be. But it also gave us a platform to think about our relationship as friends, as a company. And as a company in our fourth year that actually, you know, became a real company when we left. Um, and to this, you know, to today, I'm still working with uh, some of the people that produced the terror awards back in 2001. And so we got serious about what we wanted to do as a project. We got a chance to talk to some of the most famous alumni that ever went to Ryers to get ever, to get them involved in the show. And I think, um, because of the fact that I had experience with the bar, um, we also convinced the Ryerson and ancillary services to allow me to get a liquor license to then license the show, this live show. So we made it live. We had, um, we had six bars, you know, where people could roam while the show was live and, um, and eat and drink and celebrate broadcasting, uh, from, I think we had, you know, we were the last live performance of Mr. Dress Up, you know, who presented, you know, Best in TV Award, Best Third Year TV Award, Best Radio Show. You know, we had all of these, uh, these alumni come back, including the creation of our Chum Virtual City. I don't know if you remember it, but it was this big tent where we had Ed the Sock you know, giving awards out. My memory from that, and again, I was out of the country, and maybe I'm conflating it, but um, didn't you have blackberries? Like, wasn't that part of the appeal? Good, good uh, memory. We were using, uh, so the goal was how, what's the world, what's the, what's the world like in the future of, of television? Like, where are we going? So we wanted to use technology in the show that, um, that's game changing. And at that time it was the first version of the Blackberry, which looked like a pager. And, um, it became our envelope. So we were using the Blackberry and the winner is, and we'd be holding this like Blackberry, you know, pager that you'd stick on your belt. Uh, but, it, but you could, you could send messages and, and it was like, 
you know, this is why we don't know who the winner is. It's coming to us. <laughs> like we would be explaining to the audience. And that was the, that was RIM's activation um, was that, you know, they were our digital envelope. We we're using and not only that, they gave us um, the blackberries for all of our production team. The whole, pro- there was like 50 of us, as you know, like how many people worked on the show? We got 50 of these given to our practicing group, who not not full time, but for for pre-production. Right. So we were using these to to prepare and organize and be able to be connected together, um, not sitting at our at our computers sending sending emails and texts to each other. So it was kind of game-changing tech and very funny to even think about. But it was one of those ones where we used the scientific Atlanta, you know, um, black box that went over TVs, which again was nothing at the time, but they were promoting it as interactive TV. You guys could have all just graduated, applied for jobs, but I don't think you did that. I think that you guys graduated and maybe found yourself a little office space and I don't know, built from what you had learned to build what would become a massively successful couple of companies. How did that go? It was kind of like a club. It was like a family right off the bat. One of our partners. Uh, so, so we just said, look, let's do this. Let's stay together. Let's see what we can do. Let's see what we can accomplish. Cause if we could have, and the show we produced was super cool. We, um, you know, the terrors that year was, uh, we got a chance to play with tech. We got a chance to show people what interactive TV was like. People could watch the show and go to different stages and, and, you know, go to the 50 set or the 60 set or the 70 set and, and, um, and see different camera angles, like very basic stuff. So we were innovating the sponsors that were coming on board. were all like Bell and Rogers and, you know, Chum Television at the time. They all became who we went to as clients. You know, we just thought, look, we all we brought all these sponsors on to the Terras. Um, and they all loved us. Like we did things that they've never like they never they never thought of having Ed the Sock host a show behind a bar, uh, pouring, you know, space channel shooters, because we branded our bars around the chub channels. So they knew we were creative. They knew that we could again try to take tech create experiences and do something fun. So very quickly, um, we found ourselves um, office space, frankly, at the Goodwill. So at the time, one of our, Carrie, one of our partners, uh, her dad was was the chair of, of, of uh, the foundation. And one of their lunch rooms wasn't being used. And it was right at George and uh, uh, Richmond, somewhere around there. So it was right downtown. It's like prime real estate for us. So, um, you know, he said to us, uh, well, why don't you guys just, you know, rent, rent the, the Goodwill. And we're like, sure. Uh, how much? And, uh, he goes, had a $75 a month, Sam. And we're like, perfect. <laughs> so, uh, we moved into the Goodwill in September of 2001 and, um, and had a lunchroom is about 200 square feet. Um, and you know, stared at each other desks 
on computers, whatever we could bring from home and make it homey. And um, over the course of 2001 to 2002, we got a hold of a lot of the, the sponsors that sponsored the Terras, who became our first clients. And we actually took fourth wall productions and made it fourth wall media and incorporated. And, uh, and you know, again, parents, friends, everyone supported us. And we started a company and it started, it started as a, you know, friends, friends in university, just taking it seriously. Right. Tell me about, uh, Kara Swisher in those early days. Yeah. Wow. We didn't know who we were dealing with. Uh, Kara, who's just a powerhouse. Um, even back in 2003, I think we got our first introduction to her. And at that time, it was when we were really starting to zero in on what we were creating, which was, you know, we thought um, we need to find our audience. You know, as broadcast students, like, where's the audience? Now that we're in like 500, like 500, 1,000 channels, how do you differentiate as a television brand? How do you differentiate, you know, um, to get people to you when you're competing with such big, big brands and big networks? So we just felt that like, one of the best ways that we could do that was what if we created our own broadcast network, but it was outdoor. So imagine like, you know, the transit system in Toronto, like that's 1.6 million people a day. That's like CSI, you know, like at that time we were just equating it to like a prime time audience. And so what we decided was what if we created our own network and we put it, we, we put it in front of people. <laughs> not in their, not in their, this is just how we were thinking, not knowing, frankly, naively that we're actually becoming an outdoor advertising company. Cause that's what actually we were talking about. We were talking about putting uh, screens in front of public commuters, uh, whether they're in transit, whether they're in airports, whether they're in malls, whether they were just our head was let's go find the people and put the feed in front of them. Uh, and that was just our rationale. Because there wasn't a name for that. Yeah, which really was it. There wasn't. It was. It, it became place-based media, right? <laughs> just think about the definition: place-based media, media that's placed right in front of an audience, <laughs> which then today you know, has a number of terms, digital signage, digital out of home, digital outdoor. But back then, the only way we could test these real-time networks, because we didn't have the client, we thought were conferences, like small audience, sometimes not a, not small, you know, sometimes quite big, which we learned very quickly to the Kara Swisher story. So we thought, okay, let's power conference producers with a conference network. So custom to the delegates, they come there. It's their like, you know, CP24, what's happening right now, next session. This is what just happened. You know, this speaker is, you know, this, this session's moved to room 44. We felt that that environment 
and our ability to get in and out as a temporary audience would get us testing the product really quickly, getting us to an MVP, and getting really feedback from a stakeholder that really needed it. So we just found that producers, conference producers, jumped at this. They were like, oh my God, this takes the delegate experience to the next level. Fast forward, this is like, you know, 2002, 2003. We're now doing uh, a conference. We, we had some great relationships with the Banff Television Festival, um, which now, you know, expanded to Next Media, which was a conference around where's media going? Where's TV going? It was perfect because they were like, we as a conference producer can do what you guys are talking about. And it's part of the experience. Going back to how to create experiences, how do we want people to feel, all of that stuff. So for this, it was like, how do we create experiences and conferences where people go, wow, I felt totally connected. It was all real time. If I couldn't make it to the session, I could watch this feed. It was right in my hotel room. So we also took over the hotel room feed and became the, the CNN of the, of the conference. So Kara uh, came and she was at this time one of the head technology writers for the Wall Street Journal. And she was a columnist that also wrote uh, with, a, with another reporter named Walt Mossberg. And between these two technology columnists over the 90s and into early 2000, if they wrote a bad column about you or a positive column about you, um, it had huge influence, whoever you were. So they were very tied to the Bill Gates and the Steve Jobs and all these gurus out there. Um, so Kara came to the event. She immediately saw what we were doing and asked the conference producer to uh, intro us or intro her to us because she, she, she loved the product. She, she actually, I remember the first conversation that we sat down and she's like, you know, she had a, she had her newborn with her too. She was traveling with her partner and her newborn. And, um, and, and she was just, she was kind of frazzled, but she just said, I just got to tell you, I love this living billboard thing. She said this living billboard, like, what is this? Like, because she goes, have you heard of the wall street journal? And I'm like, no, no, I've heard of the wall street journal. Uh, she goes, we are doing a conference. It's an executive conference in San Diego. My, my, my partner, Walt Moss, this is, the, this is like all the big wigs, all the way to George Lucas, like a filmmaker. Like she just started throwing a Martha Stewart, like, holy smokes, we need this living billboard at our conference. She, could, she asked a couple of questions, like, can we do this? Can we do that? Can I have my writers right with you? Like, I'm like, absolutely. She goes, okay. Our event is in San Diego at this massive resort, and, um, and we want you guys there. And like I had at that moment, that was one of the biggest turning points for our company. Because all of a sudden, what we were doing in Charlottetown was given a stage at the largest executive digital conference in Silicon Valley. And this conference being hosted by Kara and Walt and all of a sudden, this, this small Toronto team is, is building this Wall Street Journal conference network, which we did for 10 years. That 
changed our company. When you say that you produced the Wall Street Journal's executive digital signage network, we took over a resort at um, it just it just took it to the next level. So Kara's been wonderful. She's always been an advocate. Um, she still remembers us. God love her. Um, yeah, what a powerhouse. So you know, then you're off and running. You're a company, and you know you've got this incredible um, credibility factor built in. Um, what I want to know about is um, in those early days, winning more and more work, growing the company. What was it like? How was cash flow? How did you go from being the five of you to a bigger company? Mm. Yeah. So I would say the cash flow part was probably the hardest, the hardest one to figure out. Um, where we were lucky was that when we first started, like I said, our clients were our past sponsors. And so, um, we were able to generate cash flow, good cash flow, by doing project-based work over a course of like two to four years. Where, again, I look back and we were super lucky that we didn't have to do a funding round. Um, I literally remember putting, you know, at the time it was our CFO and my partner Jake. Now, we both put $2,500 each into the bank account. So we we injected $5,000, which we knew at $75 a month for our rent, we would probably be there for 17 years. So um, at least we knew that we could pay our rent. Um, but seriously, we, we ended up cash flow financing based on, on, on great projects. We, could, we just stayed really smart with not giving up equity. And... Um, and growing the business based on the larger and bigger projects that we got. And look, as if we needed to expand out, I think during that period as well, uh, you get into the excellence of um, scaling up as you, as you need the team to scale up. And you know what, that's, that's production. That's to, that's what happens in production. You have your, your core producer team, and then, you know, when you're going to production, you're going to scale out or you do the terras, you scale out and you're up to 80 people and then you go back to 12. So we were really good at that. Um, and until we knew that we could hold on to the, the five others we added to that event for, for more than just the event, uh, we grew, we, we made the offer to, to, to grow, you know, the team with people that we were already working with. So I don't know. We we were we were lucky ducks. We had we had the ability to breathe. We certainly did projects we weren't necessarily excited about. I remember taking on projects that you just you know. I remember Erin came in one day. She's like, "Okay, I've got this great one. It's it's like it's not exciting, but it's great money." And it was a it was right when uh, dealerships were digitizing, and it was. Um, but it w like none of us wanted to be in any of the meetings because they're so boring. It was really just about database architecture. Uh, but when we were doing the big stuff and and um, you know continuing to push innovation, broadcast the stuff that we did with the and we we continued to do for the Wall Street Journal and where that became our product was where we we certainly wanted to stay. 
So tell me the story. And I totally get that, by the way, as a business owner, especially in their early days, you've got to do the stuff that pays the, that pay the bills. And sometimes it's not that exciting, but I, Mick is in, as you know, my husband, Mick is in television and he always talks about, you, you know, production companies, they need to find their antiques roadshow, the show that's going to run for 20 years and it's going to be yeah. totally reliable so that you can do the fun stuff, it's so right? True. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> it is. So I say that to Brock all the time, where's our antiques roadshow? <laughs> so, but uh, tell me about, um, and I don't know if we can name it or not, um, but your first subway system contract, because that was a big deal, you winning that. And I think you scooped it too, didn't you? Well, we kind of were like, we're, we were like the, the underdog baseball team. The idea was we're going to build these networks in front of public, in public places to provide real-time information and a and a monetized program. So running commercials meant we could, you know, create a revenue stream that then could be fed back to the landlord. This at this point being the TTC. So our thinking actually is was the out of home advertising space. We kind of disrupted it because we were coming in with tech, and everyone else was coming in with money. So you'd have like CBS Outdoor and Patterson coming in. And for the TTC, the model is usually if you get the rights to the advertising, you still have to pay a minimum guarantee to the landlord or the transit system or the airport or the mall because they're giving you that right. It's like paying rent. If you don't, if you don't sell an ad, you still owe them money. So you got to at least perform. So, you know, in this is back in 2004, we're running around saying we've got the your, we've got your underground network. We are building you your channel TTC. So, we are thinking about it very differently. Whereas and, and these usually come up as con, like, you know, termed contracts. So, in 2004, the contract was coming up. We thought we could go directly to the TTC and say, "Hey, like, we got a deal for you. What ended up happening was they said, you would have to partner with one of these big Kahuna companies like Patterson or CBS because they're either the incumbent or they're the ones that it's that kind of caliber of a company. So we, we decided to uh, present this to, um, you know, now very good friends and, and beyond. It goes back to, you know, in business, you end up having the strongest friendships and relationships. This this was a group, and it was it was Viacom Canada, so it was a U.S. entity, but it was the Canadian operation, being run by uh, an ex football player for the Montreal Alouettes, really big guy. His name is Nikaraji, like huge, and, and I, I had another bond with him. He was he was Egyptian. He was, he was an oh, Egyptian. Wow. So right. it's so funny because when I was looking at this, I'm like, he's Egyptian. I am going to connect. He is also big Egyptian and I am small Egyptian. So I, <laughs> we will be able to conquer. Um, so anyways, long story short, um, they were the incumbent actually. They had the contract. They were going back to win it and everyone else was was going after the contract, that being the big outdoor advertising companies. The way they, 
they do this is they will offer you and with the TTC the offering was 13 million dollars a year if they sold nothing they still owed the TTC over a million dollars a month in rent we came in and we said not only are we not providing a minimum guarantee we're we're not going to pay you any money TTC for the next five years. But what we're going to bring you is this incredible, you know, custom network that, that engages commuters and turns this experience that people have twice a day, every day for, you know, 268 days of the year. Incredible. So the, of course the money people are like, who are these idiots? And the the marketing people are not idiots. Who who are who are these? You know who do they think they are? There are others that went. This is very intriguing, and this isn't how we do it. We usually look at the wherewithal of the company, their experience, what's the number, and then there's economics, and then we make a decision. You guys are kind of throwing us off. So it started with us. Um, you know, really engaging Viacom to agree that we could actually be in their proposal to win the contract again under this header of new innovation. It was the only way we could get in. Everyone else said to us, we've got this. No, thank you. No, thanks, science project. No, thank you. And then, you know, Viacom said, we're not doing digital. Um, You guys seem really amazing and smart and we love partnering. So um, we ended up uh, being included in their RFP, which they won. And in 2004, they won the contract again for a seven-year deal with the TTC. So again, long story short, we won the contract. We did a pilot. And the pilot went so well, we actually got a direct contract with the TTC and um, ended up extending our contract to over... 22 years, which is one of the reasons why the Jim Pattison group bought our company. Right. Of course, because there was recurring revenue there set in place. I always remember that story because again, it wasn't taking no for an answer. It was finding your creative way of positioning. And it was not David versus Goliath, that kind of thing. It was partnering with, it was finding that commonality, finding that. And I love that, Mike, I'm kind of like that. Like I am going to get in with this person, no matter what I do, they're going to like me at the end. <laughs> I'm just going to get it. Resilience. We have yeah. to, like it's, yeah. it goes back to TV. If, if you have to get that segment, you have to get that segment. Like it's at, it's at this time. It's at this, you know, this is the expect. It's it's almost like with no inhibitions, you you got to if you can make it happen, you it'll happen. And I think that's yeah. one of the biggest things in entrepreneurship is, um, it's not only the you know being a risk taker. You got to be you, you do have to be a believer, but you can will things to happen if you yeah. just put your mind to it. You can. So I'm curious about so company getting bigger. I have a couple areas I want to go over. Your first acquisition, you're, you're acquired by Jim Pattison Group, or you're sold to, without going into because you probably can't. What what were some key takeaways? Because obviously, I, I, I you know you talk to people and they're like, the first time we acquired, we made these mistakes. The next time we were smarter. Like what what was the experience like that first time around? 
And did you have any big learnings then? I think one of the biggest learnings is when you get to the table, know your price, know your value, know what your threshold and your limits are right off the bat, because that's immediate confidence. I think right off the bat, the moment you get into a negotiation where someone is 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 interested in your IP or interested in your work or interested in your company, you need to be very confident about the the value, where the company is headed, uh, you know, what the trajectory is as it relates to whether it's a an exit, a sale, an IPO. That needs to be you know, right off the tip of your tongue. So I would say that, you know, when we first sat down, we didn't necessarily know our number. And we didn't necessarily, you know, have all of those anecdotes and and requirements and criteria coming off our tongue as easily. And so I I would say, and I remember we got some great advice from the chair at the time, the, the chairman of the Jim Patterson Group, who's an incredible guy. And one of the reasons why we did our deal is that um, he saw all of the value in what we were doing right off the bat, even if others within the organization didn't. This guy was so smart. He saw he saw everything for its value and for its liability very quickly. He was also trained as a lawyer. So, you know, he also said to us, when you sit down and you speak about your business, you need to know every element from A to Z. And we were new at that time as it relates to someone coming and saying, I want to buy your company. So we weren't as, we were building the company for the next 25 years. We weren't necessarily ready uh, for a sale. Certainly wanted to sell the company at the right time, but it wasn't, it wasn't at, it wasn't at that time. And that's why this particular acquisition, you know, it was all about the right price, the right timing and to the right group because you know, when you do sell something like this, you want to see it grow the right with the right people. But I would again just go back to you know being very confident about what your thresholds and what your price is and your value. Know the kind of acquirer you want. There's also the biggest thing is probably culture. We were a very hip, young, uh, downtown Julie Brown uh, crew in Toronto, and not that. You know, you know, our our acquisition or Patterson Outdoor wasn't. They were just. It was a different culture. They were still a, a very young group, but they all wore, you know, suits and ties. And pretty traditional sales organization. Uh, you know, the sales conference every quarter, and you know, targets and, and champions lists, and it was it's incredible actually. And it's one of the things we respected the most as we as we got acquired was how they ran their sales was, you know, Jim Pattison is, uh, he's, he's, he's got the formula, uh, right when he started with used cars, but then it's, you know, it's also about, yeah, the people and the culture. And that was a very big, that was a big barrier. You know, we were, we were, again, we were jeans and blazers and, uh, it wasn't, they weren't allowed to have wear jeans. You know, uh, it was, it was, this was in 2000. It was a dress code. It was a dress code. It was an uh, adjustment. I mean, long story short, 
we got a chance to get jeans and everyone loved us. That's the chain. We were change yeah. makers. Well, I worked, um, you know, probably around that time I was, uh, over in England and I was at what became the National Media Museum. I led the rebrand of that and museums in England were very buttoned up and very suit jackets. And like the guys had to wear a suit jacket every day and. Yeah. It was ridiculous. And so I remember I came in and I, when I came in the role of communications director, I'm like, if we're national media museum, we've got a dress like the media. And we brought, I brought jeans in. Everyone was like, Lisa, like the people in our call center had to wear these uniforms. Isn't that funny though? Like I have to say, it's so funny for a second because we, we dealt with the exact same thing, which was you change, people were so happy about what they were allowed to wear. It's almost like got like they got a raise. The, right. the cheers, the the if the, they could be themselves, and I think that was the biggest. That's the that's the other piece to this is when you start to allow that to happen, people are allowed to be themselves or feel like they can be themselves more. And so I just think it's um, it's very material. Pardon the pun, but it is. It's material for how people feel and how you make them feel and how, I mean, don't get me wrong. It wasn't like track pants uh, were allowed, but you know, it um, culturally made a ton of sense. Well, and I think it's like you and I are on the same page there. It's the experience. Like I was like, what do the people at the museum need to feel when they work here? Because we were a visitor attraction. We had the most visitors outside of any uh, museum in London. And so, you know, we needed our people to be happy to make our visitors happy. And so I remember we redid all the uniforms and I had the cleaning staff. They were my committee for mm. the uniforms because you need people to feel good about what they're wearing. So I just think, again, it's so the true. experiential inside out. So true. So, okay. So that's good advice in terms of acquisition, I think. Um, when did you and Jake become you and Jake? Like, was that from the get-go or was that an evolution? I'd say it's from the get-go. I remember in 99 or 2000, the fall, the year before, the terrors are right in there, where he uh, he and I got introduced by a friend at Ryerson and, and we had our first meeting at the uh, Ram at the Rye or that pub. We had, a, we had a great chat about what I love doing and what he loves doing and uh, <laughs> The first time I met him, and to this day, he'll have a laptop with a spreadsheet. And the spreadsheet will either be a calculation of something or some sort of ranking of whether we should be spending time on something or not. Totally the opposite of what I like thinking about, but is most valuable in a, in a relationship like this. And he would probably say the same thing about what I do and, and what he doesn't want to be doing which is, you know, spending, spending time developing and nurturing relationships and um, understanding where we should be heading versus the, the mechanics of it. So here we are putting together someone that loves being high up at 30,000 feet, and, and, and so does my partner. But then he wants to get in over here right underneath and start connecting, like, the wires and where the, screw, let's put the screws here and... Oh, you know, where's the hard drive? So if we're building a computer, he'd be, we're going to build a supercomputer based on the idea of the application that we want to, we want to build. So we were just like a kind of a really perfect marriage of talent, you know, legals, financial, a lot of the 
administrative structuring and mechanics. And that was everything I didn't like doing. And so, you know, between the two of us, uh, we could truly divide and conquer and play our role um, every day, probably not speak for a week or two and, and just be able to operate. And at times that was really important because uh, when you have at, you know, the one stop days, we, we had 90 people and building our networks out every day, um, sales teams across the country with Patterson. So we definitely learned the divide and conquer early, but it happened early. I'd say it happened super early. When you can say, and we just went through, we just went through a raise, raising some, some funds to scale the company um, globally with a number of products. And, you know, when you're on a call with an investor and you kick it off with, you know, we've been together for 20 years, there's a real sense from an, from anyone on the other side to go, okay, these guys know what they're doing. It's almost like saying, yeah, my wife and I have three kids have been married for 20 years. You're like, oh, wow. They solid marriage. You know, never know what's going on behind the curtain, but like that's a long time. Um, yeah. So strength and time was, was certainly something that, that uh, we've always don't, doesn't come with like uh, any, there's certainly disagreements and there's certainly um, different ways of working. But, um, you know, when we agree, there's magic and, and we typically agree right. on many things. I find it interesting talking about business partnerships because obviously I'm in a business partnership and have been, you know, for 10, all coming up to 10 years now. And uh, I know what it takes. I call it a second marriage. It drives my husband nuts when I call it a second marriage, but you've got to work on the partnership. And I think that you've often talked about that. Yeah. I think that, I think that, you know, when we don't do that, we feel it. Um, yeah. COVID was a great example of that. It kind of tested our, uh, our need for that physical connection as a, like as partners, because it's different when you're planning over the phone and when you're, when you're in the same room feeding off of it, conversations, conversation on a call. And it's wonderful. There's something very different about that. So it was a different vibe for COVID and over COVID, but it made us um, operate very differently and, and certainly think about how we collaborate differently. I would just say that the last 12 months has probably been the biggest change our company's seen. So I think we've proven that, uh, you know, we can certainly change the way we collaborate. Yeah. So jumping off that, Mike, you're married to one of your uh, original business partners and continue to work. I mean, I think Aaron is still involved in the companies that you're, that you've got. So yep. how, how, like that's, that's close. Like how, how have you navigated that is literally the intersection of business and life? Yeah, totally. It didn't start off that way. It certainly, you know, we, we, we met in school. She was in third year. Like she was, this was like literally out of Ryerson into building our companies together and then realizing if we can, we can build a company together. We can have a family together. What a test, but what an amazing outcome, you know? And I think about successes in life, like school. And I'm like, yeah, I had friends in school. And then we started a company and it was like, you know, that became a real thing. And then it's still, it's there. You can go see it. It's surviving. There's a whole other company running it. 
you know, there's this whole thing. And then you kind of look back, we're like, wow, look what also came. Hey, kids, come on over here. And you could, you know, you know, here, I, I grew a family out of this too. So pretty special. Like we feel totally blessed that that happened. It also came with the support of the, the rest of partners. You know, what a, it felt like a little bit of a soap opera because all of a sudden, you know, there's five partners and two of them are getting married. And that changes the dynamic of the company. Absolutely. Um, the interesting part about it was it actually came at a time when we were getting acquired. And so it was a good timing because the whole company and everyone was going through this big change. For me, that year, uh, I turned 40. So we sold our company, got married, and you know had my first baby all in that year. So that was interesting because we didn't necessarily have to go through us being married and the new dynamic of us being married with the bigger group. So it felt like a, a great endpoint uh, where that happened. There's there's no better outcome in a business than, uh, than than the family that comes with it. I mean, literally, not just the work family, but the home family. I think that's amazing. So give me, bring me up to speed on what you and Jake are uh, today. You've got um, Big Digital and then you've got Dive. And and I know you have a whole bunch of other interests and not that you need to go into them all, but second time around, you built something from scratch, you built something out of nothing and you sold it. And how does it change when you start a new company or new companies? Well, I think you definitely have a different perspective on what startup is and where you need to be spending time. You know, if we look back, like, God, we've wasted a lot of time, you know, dealing with stuff that we really didn't need to, but you don't know. So I think the second time around, you're way more efficient uh, or, or you hope that you're way more efficient. You know, I think that there's also a sense of confidence. You're, there's, a, you know, it's not the first rodeo. So there's people you can go to that will go, oh, you guys did that, there's at least a probability you're going to be successful again. So, you know, the belief is there much faster, you know, and we're also 22 years older. And I think that, you know, for us, it was about, we weren't ready to kind of stop creating. And how about this today, Mike? What does your pie chart of time on a daily basis look like these days? Who? Between the three entities, so we have three companies that we've invested in that we either jump in and operate and support, or we're doing business development and helping the management team. So my my time uh, has been spent working on all three, in particular, Dive and Big. Dive is doing some really fun, interesting stuff with... Twitter and Twitter global on new uh, what I would what we call sort of the their first physical world ad unit called Twitter billboard. So instead of buying an ad unit and saying, hey, we, we own the trend on Twitter, you know, on the phone and in the application, we're actually bringing Twitter to life with their advertisers and putting their campaigns up on the same time that they're buying on Twitter. They can hit, you know, the Twitter billboard button, and we've created a product with Twitter that puts those those advertising campaigns on billboards across the U.S. 
in you know international markets. Um, we launch in the UK like you know next week. There'll be billboards where your your old stomping grounds. Um, yeah, and just looking at different markets, Latin America. So it's very interesting. It's fun. It's it's always big stuff. Uh, you know, working on big brands and um, really interesting, innovative stuff. And then big digital, similar. It's like that's in the big billboard outdoor space. It's from our core. We know it. And big is real complementary to that because big is creating these pop up billboards and have validated this idea of, you know, in the past, we've been putting these billboards on walls and build them in these permanent places. Um, there hasn't been a product out there that's made these as pop-up billboards. It could be moved around. It could be five billboards in an open field where Live Nation's going to have 80,000 people for three days. So there, there, isn't a pro- there hasn't been a product created out there for that. So we've been developing that, industrial designing it, validating it. And so that's big. And then I'd say the, the sort of last piece uh, where I spend time is working with the team at PopCan, where we work with shipping containers, sea cans, recycled containers, and create these, uh, ref- refurb them and create these micro retail locations, making drive throughs out of them all the way to, you know, small cannabis retail stores that we've, we've been successfully opening with the AGCO's approvals and been the first sort of shipping container cannabis store. So just enabling uh, entrepreneurs in that space to get innovative with their retail footprint. That's amazing. I mean, I think you've been so successful and you've already accomplished so much. What success are you still chasing? Just being a great husband and a daddy. (laughs) That's it. After all this other stuff doesn't matter. I think it is that though. I think it's the, you know, what I'm striving for is to just continuing to have fun and creating cool products, but not at the expense of family and time with my, my kids and, and my Aaron and, and my mom and my sisters and my extended family. So I think the balance piece is still uh, paramount. It's hard. Uh, we still, I still struggle with it every week. You know, you, you know, those kids show up a little early before the podcast and you got to make sure they're safe in the pool. You know, it's not a, it's not a straight road, but that's, that's the continue to have a lot of fun doing what we're doing and doing it with fun people, you know, doing it with great people. I think the people around you makes all the difference. Absolutely. Okay. Mike, what's, what's the best piece of advice or your favorite piece of advice? Just be yourself, be who you are. Like never, never trying to paint the picture of, of something that, that you aren't. Don't, don't fake it till you make it. There's a certain level of, you know, embellishment to sell the pitch. But, and that's, that's just pitching really well. But I just think that um, some people go off and uh, don't stay their authentic self. And if you do stay who you are and, you know, you'll, good things will come. Uh, I think that that's being honest, being trustworthy, being empathetic. Know that you work for your staff. You're there yeah. to, to make sure they get that paycheck. Like I said, the very first pressure I felt was addressing the team at Dr. Gertie's and looking out at those smiling young faces ready to serve that beer and that food. 
knowing that they're relying on us to run a great place so they get a paycheck outside of the tips. And that holds true to the stuff that we have today and you have today. Yeah. There's a level of responsibility. And so, uh, yeah. Uh, problem solving abilities, nature or nurture? Probably nurture myself or others. Uh, yeah, I think both? it's, uh, I, yeah, both. Yeah. Nurture. Nurture. Okay. And Mike, a totally alternate career path. Mm. If you weren't doing what you were doing today, what would you have been doing? If I could, I'd be, I'd be belting out rock songs, you know, rock tunes, singing eighties, eighties tunes, you know, some, whoever would, would sit out and listen, you know, remember, remember this one, let's do it. I'd, I'd be there. Uh, I, 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 yeah. No, you know what? I, I've, I've, uh, you know, if I wasn't doing what I was doing, it would, it would still be creating some sort of experience to make people feel good, happy. That's always been in, in, instilled in me is, uh, you want to make people feel good around you. Always wanted to always strive to, um, whether we're building a product or creating an environment or serving food or that's awesome, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for joining our podcast. Gorgeous. No problem. Gorgeous. No problem. Luscious. <laughs> <laughs>